History This Week, May 31st, 1889. I'm Sally Helm. It's been raining all night. And in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, the waters are rising. Which isn't unusual. The town is in a valley between two rivers. When a big storm comes through the area, the people of Johnstown know what to do. They roll up their first floor carpets, raise their pianos up onto chairs, On this morning in May, a local attorney takes the important papers in his law office and puts them up on a higher shelf, above the water line left by the last big flood two years before. Then that attorney goes home. His name is Horace Rose. He's not particularly worried, even when he has to float on an improvised raft to get to his back door. His wife and children are home, The roses talk to their neighbors from their windows. The water's too high for them to get close to each other, but they pass over a tin cup of coffee balanced on a broom. Their neighbor raises the coffee to her lips. And just at that moment... Later, people will say that they heard the sound first, that it was like a freight train, like thunder. And then they saw it. But it didn't look like water. One person later wrote that it looked like a fire. There was a layer of black mist floating in front from all the debris that the flood had already picked up. Houses, train cars, uprooted trees. Within minutes, Johnstown will be decimated. And 2,000 people will be dead. Today, we look back at the great Johnstown flood and how it might have been avoided. After all, the town had been through floods before. But 1889 was different. This was no natural event. The disaster can be traced back to a broken dam up in the mountains above town. The water that ripped through Johnstown was from a man-made lake at a summer resort intended to provide boating and fishing for the rich and famous of the Gilded Age. So how did this millionaire's playground cause so much destruction? And when an entire town was ruined in minutes, Was anyone held accountable? One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. 
Neil Coleman is a geologist and a flood guy. He used to work in Washington, D.C., where one of his responsibilities was helping the government figure out how they could protect nuclear reactors from deadly floods. He has also studied ancient Martian flooding? Yes, uh, mega floods on Mars. I specialized in where craters filled with water to the point that they overflowed, breached the side, and a mega flood happened. After retiring from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Coleman wound up teaching geophysics at the University of Pittsburgh campus in Johnstown. And there, of course, he became interested in the Great Flood. He wanted to know what caused it scientifically. How exactly did it happen? So a couple years back, he hiked up to visit the dam. I think the first time that I went there, leaves were starting to fall from the trees and drifting, starting to get some color on the leaves. A beautiful day. But there's an eeriness about that place. I'm not the only one that senses that, and I'm not into uh, occult stuff. But it's a sad place when you realize what happened there. And what happened to all all the people below that dam. Back then, in 1889, there were 30,000 people living in Johnstown. There was a main street lined with stores, office buildings, a library. There was a roller skating rink, a baseball team called the Quick Steps. And economically... It was centered around the iron mill. The people of Johnstown were steel people. The steel furnaces made the sky glow red at night. Trees near the mills were black and leafless. But the jobs were good. The town really started to take off in the 1830s, when a canal system gets built to help the steel industry grow. But the engineers have a problem to confront. In the summertime, the flows in the rivers were so low that you couldn't float canal boats. But if you had a storage of water in a reservoir, you could release that water gradually, maintain just enough flow to float the canal boats. So to store that water and feed the canals when the time was right, they build a dam high up on the mountain, made out of earth, rocks, and clay. It might sound simple, but picture it huge. 72 feet high and 931 feet long. The dam took 15 years to build. And by the time it was done, railroads had kind of replaced canals. This huge dam was obsolete. So the dam and its reservoir got sold and sold again until it reached the hands of a Pittsburgh businessman. A man named Benjamin Ruff. I don't know how much Ruff told about what he was going to do with the property. Ruff didn't tell very many people what he was doing. He was looking for privacy. Because 15 miles away from Johnstown, up in the mountains, he wanted to build a summer paradise for the rich. This was the beginning of the Gilded Age, and the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club would be a resort catering to this new class of unparalleled wealth. Well, the Carnegies are probably the the most famous. Carnegie or Carnegie, however you say it, you probably know the name. Andrew Carnegie would soon become the richest man in America. Also in the club were Henry Clay Frick, a steel magnate, 
Andrew Mellon, who would go on to become Secretary of the Treasury, and other members included a future Secretary of State, a future congressman, and the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad. The locals in Johnstown didn't even know who many of the members were. The club people were not there to make nice with the townsfolk. The real purpose, I think, was children of wealthy families got to intermingle and probably eventually marry. That was the the plan. Ruff designed the club to be a peaceful retreat where rich people and their kids could pal around undisturbed. The clubhouse itself had a beautiful wide porch that wrapped around the front of the building and part of the side. There were also boathouses and stables. The guests stayed in cottages, though pretty nice cottages. One of them had 17 rooms and a tower. Still, even the wealthiest at the time couldn't get indoor plumbing in such a remote area. But their outhouses did have two stories. The upper part was accessed by walkways out the back of the building. And I, as I say, I don't know quite how those work. At the center of the club was this former reservoir, now called Lake Connemont. The members and their families flitted around on state-of-the-art sailboats and catamarans. To the locals, this was unbelievable. Nobody had ever seen sailboats up that high in the mountains. The club members were in a world of their own. And for the people of Johnstown, It is hard to imagine how much the club people were feared. You had very few job protections for people back then. If you upset any of these people in any way, I mean, even if you didn't work for their company, since they all were close friends with each other. Mark Twain coined the term gilded age because he saw this wealth as a thin layer of gold covering a world of cutthroat capitalism underneath. As an average worker, if you upset these people, it could potentially cost you your livelihood. They were powerful. So powerful that they essentially operated without oversight. As the club grew, they decided to make a change at the dam. They wanted to build a bigger roadway on top of it, wide enough for two carriages to pass by each other. And in that construction process they made a grave error. They didn't just widen the road. They also made the top of the dam lower by about three feet. They didn't have to lower the dam to widen the road. It's a simple engineering technique to widen the road on top. But what they had done is they'd fatally damaged the dam. And now the towns below the dam were were doomed to eventual destruction because of that change. The people of Johnstown knew about the dam, but they didn't know just how serious a threat it was. Still, the idea of the dam breaking sometimes got tossed around in conversation. People would joke when it rained, maybe this is the day the old dam is going to break. But it didn't seem to worry them all that much. I found one article in the Johnstown Tribune paper. The, The editorial said, You know, if that dam up there ever does break, by the time it would get all the way down here, the water would all spread out and and it just wouldn't be that much to worry about. But a funny thing was, in the column right beside that one were professional ads for for three men in downtown Johnstown. One was a doctor, one was a justice of the peace, and so on. All three of them died three years later in the flood. 
On the night of May 30th, 1889, a downpour begins. The worst rainfall ever recorded up to that point in Western Pennsylvania. Johnstown is still full from Memorial Day celebrations. People who came to town for the parade or played in the band. Johnstown has seen rain before and it's seen flooding before. So the townspeople probably talk about this bad late May weather, but they're not expecting disaster. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The next morning, on May 31st, up at the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club, a man named John Park wakes up to see that the weather has cleared. He's the club's resident engineer, a recent college grad. He's only 22 years old. Park's big job is overseeing the installation of indoor plumbing, but he's also in charge of the dam. And after all that rain, he goes down to check on it. He said the, the water had risen tremendously over the night, and he went by boat to look at it in, in person, and he'd never seen the water so high. Park is really worried. Remember, they've lowered the dam. And if the water gets high enough that it starts spilling over the top, that could lead to disaster. He calls for reinforcements to help add mud to the top of the dam, dig channels to divert the water. Some of the club members come down to watch the chaos. Park is riding around on horseback, telling the men to work faster. You had a crew of people frantically digging a ditch on the western end, but they were not able to dig anything near fast or wide enough or deep enough. And so by around 11.30 a.m., water started flowing over the top of the dam. Park rides to the village of South Fork to try to send a telegram to Johnstown to warn them. But in the chaos of the storm, the message doesn't make it through. Park goes back to the dam. And at around 3 p.m. A small notch formed, got bigger and bigger, and started eroding down, cutting away at the lower end of the dam. We call it a liquefaction failure, where the dam went from a solid state suddenly to a sort of a liquid state in the center, until finally the whole center section of the dam suddenly collapsed. This is a catastrophic failure. The water starts spilling out of the reservoir, moving at about 12 miles an hour. The whole lake will empty in less than 45 minutes. 20 million tons of water. As it crashes down the mountain, the flood picks up homes, bridges, 
trains, livestock, and people. It was like a gigantic tsunami wave that just tore everything apart that it encountered. When it finally hits Johnstown, People often don't describe seeing water at first. They just saw houses being tossed up. The, the water came in and sort of lift them up. And then they would start rolling and twisting and being torn apart. That lawyer from earlier, Horace Rose, he wrote, there was a crash, a sensation of falling, a consciousness that I was in the water, and all was dark. It's very difficult for anyone to survive because if you get driven under by that There's no swimming. Horace Rose manages to surface. But he feels an excruciating pain on his right side, like he's being crushed to death. He writes that he is expecting in a moment to know the reality of eternity. But then Rose manages to pull himself onto a roof that's floating by. Other people in town have grabbed shutters, mattresses. And... The luck of the draw, if they grabbed hold of the right debris, they could survive. Some people are lucky. A six-year-old girl named Gertrude is saved by one of her neighbors. He finds her floating on a mattress and throws her 15 or 20 feet to a group of people safe in a building on higher ground. She lives. Another man named James Walters gets torn out of his house by the flood, grabs a passing roof, and then is catapulted through the window of an upper-story room in a building called Alma Hall. He looks up and realizes he's in his own office. Alma Hall is the tallest building in town, and on May 31st, over 200 people spent the night there, wet and hungry and grieving. Other people found shelter where they could, Some slept in trees. People huddled together in attics that had survived. Um, It was a terrible night. Around 6 p.m., impossibly, there's a fire. The floodwaters were full of timber, and they had flowed until they got caught up in a bridge at the base of town. The debris formed this huge, uh, horrible jam and it actually dammed up the water for quite some time there through the night. That pile of debris caught fire, with living people still trapped inside. Fires also broke out all across town. That night, the sky was red, but not because of the steel plants. The next morning, the survivors wake up to an eerie quiet. Over 2,000 people are dead. In the 10 horrifying minutes of the flood, the town has been virtually destroyed. There's no water safe to drink. Much of their food is gone. People are in shock, suffering from exposure, pneumonia. By noon, the townspeople have set up a rope bridge to try and get people to safety. They're shuttling supplies around on makeshift rafts. There aren't many buildings standing, but the ones that are become hospitals, shelters, places to distribute food. There's no FEMA at this point, no federal aid on its way. 
But reporters begin to descend on Johnstown from as far away as Chicago and New York. They're sending out dispatches of what they see, and it becomes a huge story across the country, arguably the biggest since the assassination of President Lincoln. People are shocked, concerned, riveted by the flood. The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette has to reduce their page size so they can print more copies of the paper to have enough in stock. All of this national attention translates into money. People from across the U.S. and even around the world start sending donations and supplies to help rebuild Johnstown. A lot of help comes from a woman named Clara Barton. She had founded the American Red Cross just eight years earlier. They'd helped deal with disasters before, but nothing like this. Barton and the Red Cross arrived in Johnstown just days after the flood. They brought doctors and nurses and clean water and food and supplies. Barton stayed for five months, spending long hours doing relief work. When she left, Johnstown presented her with a diamond locket in thanks. This was the moment that really launched the Red Cross. Now, while all of these relief efforts are happening, people are also looking for someone to blame. It was automatically assumed that um, the club people were irresponsible and not taking care of their dam. The press was quick to point the finger at the club and their dam. But especially in the Pittsburgh papers, they didn't mention specific names of the members. And the members themselves stayed quiet. But even so, reporters start to get the story from locals. Farmers who say they sold hay to the club to patch the dam townsfolk who say they'd complained about the dam in the past. People across the country want answers. And a group of engineers comes up to do a sort of autopsy of the dam. They put their report together for the uh, Society of uh, Civil Engineers, but they decided to hold up publication until two years after the flood, hijacking this investigation and delaying, and I believe also distorting its results. Sally, let me put it this way. The simple truth was the railroad and club men wanted to avoid at all cost having eminent hydraulic engineers appear in a courtroom, put their hands on a Bible, and, and swear to tell the truth as they saw it of the South Fork Dam and the club that owned it. While the report was on hold, other lawsuits did go forward. But in the end, only the Pennsylvania Railroad had to pay any damages because some whiskey on a train car got lost. There were a number of barrels of whiskey that had been on one of the rail cars, and they disappeared. And I guess it came out that one of the Pennsylvania Railroad conductors turned his, turned his eye away as these things disappeared. The irony of this, more than 2,200 people dead. No one found liable for any of that. But hey, some barrels of whiskey are gone. Someone's going to have to pay. It's, uh, it's actually a little disturbing. The club was never found liable and never paid a dime. Coleman told us it's an age-old story. We're dealing with a power over truth here, just, just like has been with us since the days of the ancient Greeks and Romans. Power over truth. He says those two things have been in conflict for generations, and of course, they still are. 
you can really see it in this tragedy from 1889, if you bother to look. The thing is, American people, like, like people in most places, are very busy. And uh, present generations may not remember catastrophes from decades ago. Ordinary people around the world helped Johnstown when the people responsible wouldn't. So in that way, it's a hopeful story. But Coleman says that doesn't mean we can forget the massive injustice Johnstown endured. When the lives of thousands, maybe tens of thousands, may hang in the balance, truth somehow must rise above the, uh, the chaos that uh, power and greed all too often inflict. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on history today. This podcast is produced by McKamey Lynn, Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is the aptly named Brian Flood. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. When we were putting this episode together, we consulted a great book by David McCullough called The Johnstown Flood. So thanks to him. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week.